You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Tonight, we're investigating a very important topic that is close to all of us, aged care, and asking the question, have loved ones in aged care been abandoned by this government? Like many, I have seen the effects of aged care, healthcare and social welfare system on people, especially elderly women. My mother is 84 and lives an active, independent and reasonably well-funded life. However, last year I held the hand of our children's nanny of 16 years, Elsie, whom we had known for 23 years as she lay dying of cancer in a hospice aged 89. My mother's life and that of Elsie's couldn't have been more different. Both women, highly intelligent, should have been university educated, yet my mother, as they say, married well and had a, has access to private health insurance and good quality amenities. <clears throat> Whereas Elfie, Elsie, a single mother and proud woman, had to fight for everything, despite living on the poverty line from time to time. What is available to my mother wasn't always available to Elsie. The work involved to make sure Elsie was cared for over the last 10 years, and especially in the last stages of her life, was immense as we navigated our increasingly fractured, underfunded aged care, public housing and healthcare systems. However, I am glad to say that our hard work paid off as we finally got Elsie into a hospice where she was loved and cared for by amazing staff until her death in March 2021. But it shouldn't have been so hard for her or us. What many of us have come to realise, especially during the pandemic, is how essential universally available health and social support systems like aged care and the NDIS are to our collective well-being, whatever our means. Properly staffed and funded, these vital support systems should allow us to live our lives with dignity and respect. However, we have far, we are far from that at the moment. And my mother is terrified of the prospect of ever having to go into assisted aged care. All of us will experience the effects of decisions made by our governments, public institutions, businesses and communities about how we care for our citizens as they age. Tonight is your opportunity to discuss this important area and see how we can affect real and positive change. To lead our discussion, we have Zoe Daniel, community-backed independent candidate for Goldstein, award-winning journalist, three-time foreign correspondent, and the ABC's Washington Bureau Chief from 2015 to 2019. Zoe lives in Hampton with her family and will be speaking tonight with people who work across the aged care and community health sectors, as well as people who are caring for elderly parents and family members and their experiences with the aged care sector before and during the pandemic. We will explore what is required to help us navigate our way forward to ensure people in aged care are treated with dignity. What I'd like to do now is first introduce our panellists and then I'll be handing it over to Zoe for uh, the discussion. We have Judy Tucker, who is a state registered nurse division one with many years of experience working in the aged care industry, including founder and director of a home care agency facility manager and CEO of a not-for-profit aged care facility, unit manager for a large aged care unit with the Royal Freemasons Homes in Paran, 
community liaison nurse for the former Prime Life organization, working across all their portfolios, including aged care and retirement living, case management for the TAC, and private work in consulting. I'd then like to introduce Sharon Burley, who is a pastoral care practitioner with Corpus Christi Aged Care Clayton. Sharon provides pastoral care and direct ministry to residents and their families, ensuring residents' personal beliefs, privacy, and confidentiality are respected. She's a key liaison between residents, management, and staff, ensuring duty of care and well-being is utmost in all aspects of care provided in all stay patterns of residents. Liaising with leaders and other, of other denominations and faiths, Sharon helps meet the religious and spiritual needs of residents who are not Catholic and are residing in the community. We then have Sarah, Dr. Sarah Russell, who is Principal Researcher at Research Matters, Public Health Researcher and Director, Director of Aged Care Matters, and now the independent candidate running for the seat of Flinders. Sarah trained as a critical care nurse before completing a Bachelor of Arts degree and PhD at University of Melbourne. Sarah became interested in aged care when her parents moved to an aged care home. After her father died, she stepped into full-time care of her mother to ensure quality of life. Sarah has written 75 opinion pieces on aged care, um, which have been published in The Age, The Guardian, The Herald Sun, Michael West Media and Al Jazeera, to name a few. She's also undertaken several research projects on aged care with her home care research commissioned by the Minister for the Aged Care, published in peer-reviewed journal, Australasian Journal on Asian Aging. Sarah believes the aged care system requires greater scrutiny, accountability and transparency. She advocates for an aged care act that is focused on human rights of older people, not just profit, the profit of providers. We have Sarah Hardy, who is a carer for her two parents aged 93 and 87, both of whom have transitioned from living at home to supported independent living and are now negotiating aged care. Sarah originally worked as a registered nurse, but has since worked as an educator, business owner in training videos and administrator. And finally, we have Deb Stewart, who's a highly experienced health and human services executive who operates a values-based philosophy and has expert contemporary knowledge of acute community and primary care services across the lifespan. She holds a BSc in Community Specialist Practice from the University of Sussex, UK, and is an alumni of the Folio Community Leadership Victoria Program in 2015, and a winner of the SAPS Executive Leadership Award in 2015. She is currently the CEO of the Central Bayside Community Health Services, a role she commenced in 2018. Prior to this appointment, Deb, Deb held several significant leadership roles at Monash Health. While her clinical background is in nursing, she has spent her professional life developing community-based solutions, and this plus her strategic leadership style has positively impacted decision-making and the interdisciplinary inter and interprofessional level within health and health-related organisations. Thank you everyone for being here this evening. Zoe, I'm going to hand it over to you for our discussions. Thank you, Sue. Thank you so much for the introduction. And if everyone could keep themselves on mute while we begin our conversation, and then we'll bring you in as we go along. Our older people deserve safety and dignity in care, and our families deserve access to safe and appropriate places for their older relatives to spend their later years. Several inquiries now have pointed to common issues in aged care, particularly the lack of qualified and available carers. We've even had a Royal Commission but what's happened? 
Aged care has become a profit-driven industry beset with problems, and COVID has starkly exposed this. It's time this was recognised and actively tackled. Tonight, we have a panel of experts and residents who will explain their experiences of navigating the aged care system and discuss some options for improvement. This is an opportunity for me to listen to you, to help me to advocate for you in Canberra. And this is the strength of the community independent model that we can have these direct conversations. I very much hope that we can start having them face to face very soon. Please put your comments in the chat and we will integrate them into our discussion. And please do make it known if you would like to tell your story. So let's get into our panel. I'm going to start with Sarah Russell, who, as you heard, has done substantial research in this area. Sarah, what is going wrong in aged care? <laughs> that actually is quite an easy question to answer, surprisingly, because Sue's introduction showed the disparity between a very good aged care experience and a very not so good aged care experience. And I think it's often forgotten that there are very good aged care homes and there very, are very good aged care providers. What is what is happening in aged care, because it is a profit-driven industry, as you pointed out, unscrupulous operators are coming into the sector and have come into the sector primarily to make a profit. And so they bring the reputation of the whole sector down. My, what I think we can do to fix the sector is to have financial transparency. And I, I would like the government subsidy of, which is given to aged care providers to be spent on residents. Or if it's a home care, I'd like it to be spent on the home care services. So that isn't happening because we don't have, it is happening in some aged care homes and some home care providers charge a reasonable administration and case management fee and they provide a good service. So these good providers are doing the right thing. It's the not so good providers. Now we can, we can fix this. We can with an aged care act that is focused on the human rights of older people. In 1997, John Howard's government brought in an aged care act that was more focused on the profits of providers. And there was reason for that. And I'll be quick now because the reason was we have an aging population and they looked at the numbers and they looked at the money that was required from government to, to, you know, provide aged care services. And they decided we needed to bring in private providers from overseas, from real estate companies, all sorts of people got it, was encouraged to come into the aged care sector to make money. So that's primarily what went wrong. And although the, we haven't seen a lot of change since the Royal Commission, the government did agree to rewrite the Aged Care Act. And the very first recommendation was the Aged Care Act should be rewritten with a human rights perspective. Alleluia. So it can be fixed. Okay. Just before we move on to our next speaker, Sarah, I, I wonder whether we have to return to a, a publicly run system or whether we can actually have an effective privately run system. So other than, for example, the tying of subsidies specifically to care that you talked about, what other things could be done to the existing system to make it more effective for those living in aged care? 
people often say we should take it back to the public sector. But privatisation in itself is not the problem. Because as I said in earlier, there are good private providers, many good aged care private providers. The problem is the marketization of aged care. Now, let me just quickly explain what that means. In the Aged Care Act in 1997, and subsequently uh, the Aged Care Sector Committee, they want a deregulated aged care sector, meaning they don't want regulation. They want it to open up to the free market. And what I have been arguing for six years now is frail older people cannot be, certainly in residential aged care, it's hard for them to be active consumers. They're actually called consumers. They have the health department calls all the people receiving aged care services, whether it be residential or whether it be home care, they call them consumers. Now, I think um, this free market idea for aged care, particularly residential aged care, is a mistake because we need good regulation. The regulator has failed aged care. The government has failed aged care, but so has the regulator which is part of the government, I guess. But I mean, if we had good regulation and we had transparency in finances, I think we could have a much better system. It doesn't have to go back to the public, but there is a lot. The pandemic has been such a crisis in aged care and it's highlighted the systemic issues in aged care that the simple solution seems to be to take it back to public ownership. And I don't agree with that. I think, I think we can make it better with good regulation. No, I'll, I'll come to our aged care health professionals in a moment, but I want to jump straight to the personal experience of aged care, which I, I think many of you who are on this call will relate to. Sarah Hardy, as Sue explained, you have two older parents who you're caring for and, and supporting in, in several ways, and you're a former registered nurse. Can you just explain your experience of navigating their yeah. care? Yeah. So it, it has been a confusing time. It's been sort of two and a half years now. And as my mother often says, I haven't been old before. And similarly, I haven't dealt with older people before. Um, so it's a new situation for both of us. Um, and I am a registered nurse. I have a degree in commerce. I thought I was very well equipped to deal with my parents aging. Um, I had been advised for them, uh, for them to stay at home for as long as possible. Um, and so I was introduced to the, my age care register, one of this the first point, um, where you get assessment to see if you're eligible for any of the government services. And what I found was there was an enormous amount of paperwork and I, I'm not sure that that can be avoided. Um, there's a lot of acronyms you have to become familiar with. Um, there are these I'll call them mysterious channels of funneling because I didn't understand there were two quite different um, areas of funding. Um, and I found when my mother quickly went downhill for a particular condition um, and I needed to put her in respite, um, we weren't eligible 
to have her in respite. So we're paying, uh, was almost $3,000 for a two week hospitalized or respite time, which I think was actually at the upper end, but it was still a bit of a shock. Um, COVID has made everything much more difficult and that's a shame, um, to both the residents, uh, the suppliers of services. And I really feel for the suppliers of the services, um, cause they've got staff shortages and <laughs> an interesting, uh, remote assessment. So I was getting my parents assessed for their physical, mental and social, um, capability via a zoom call. Mm. And that was bizarre, but I understand that's how it had to be. And everyone at the end point has been really lovely, actually lovely and caring. So at the end of all the phone calls, at the end of all the paperwork, um, people have been lovely. Um, but I thought, oh, maybe I'm being, I'm not being a dummy. What, why is this so hard? And then, uh, I was introduced to a carers network and I went to a lovely afternoon tea. And I met other carers who were going, this is impenetrable. This is so complicated. And these other carers were also in the allied health area. So kind of, we're all in the health area. Why is this so hard? Um, so, and I understand from GPs that a lot of families go through this families are under increasing stress. And then there's a critical event with their parents where they're forced to do something, but it's, it, it is, it's emotionally, intellectually, it's very tiring, exhausting. And people, you know, I'm not alone in, you know, lying on the couch, emotionally eating, um, you know, just mentally and emotionally exhausted. And I'm sure Sue probably went through the same thing. It's really hard. And like Sue, lucky I don't drink because I might have turned me to drink. Um, so I, I would like to see advocates in the system. I'd like to see better infographics so people kind of know how they're being channeled through the system. But it's, it is, it's really hard. And if I find it hard, God help those that don't have supportive family um, or, or they may have no family at all. So I guess I'd kind of like to see some advocates in my system as well. Yep. I can see a lot of people nodding at, at your comments, Sarah. So thank you for being so generous about your experience. And Judy Tucker, I, I wanted to bring you into the conversation as someone who's been involved in directing a a home care agency and, and managing an aged care facility. How do these comments resonate with you? Um, it's, it's pretty typical, um, Zoe really. And I think the trouble is, I mean, I know when I was looking at my mother going into aged care, um, and I do this for other people as an advocate, et cetera, but you're already stressed. So it's very difficult. But, um, and it is, um, it isn't certainly easy. Um, and I've in my time had many frustrating times. Um, I discovered that Centrelink used faxes and, um, that surprised me. And unfortunately I had a big fax to send to Canberra and, and that was fine. Except that later I discovered that only faxed half of it. 
but it's it's very very frustrating, and uh, um, I totally agree. But um, on the other hand, once you know the system and you know the documentation, um, and you know about needing an assessment for respite care, so you don't have to pay a lot of money, um, it's um, it's not too difficult then. But then you know that's all very well, uh, and so I guess that's why some people choose to get someone who is experienced to deal with it um, and, uh, and others, you know, don't. It's, it isn't, it shouldn't be like that, but it is. That's the situation. So I want to get to sort of some solutions-oriented conversation in the back end of this, but just while I've got you there, I wanted to ask you about Sarah Russell's position that subsidies should be tied directly to care. What's your view on that? Well, it all comes down to the sort of instrument they use um, with funding and care. At the moment, it seems to be, and it has been for many, many years, um, that uh, it requires people to falsely document care needs um, in order to get the funding. Uh, it's focused on uh, creating more dependent people and not not rewarding a provider for in encouraging independence. Uh, and, that's, and that needs to change on the point system. I know there's something new, a new system coming in in October, and I, I just wonder about that, whether it's going to be worse or easier. But um, it is, at the moment, um, I discovered um, that I, I left the aged care uh, facility situation in uh, the, uh, or at least a decade ago. And, uh, but I discovered that many people were sort of, unfortunately, in order to get more funding, were actually creating lots of different stories that didn't uh, fit in with the truth. So it's, it's very difficult. And how, and how you get around that um, requires vigilance, but, um, you know, when you're looking at, a, unfortunately, at, at the politics and government, how surveillance and systems work, uh, I'm not sure how it works in aged care, proper surveillance, but um, it certainly is required. And as I said, we need to look at um, a funding system that rewards a provider for looking at improving independence and not dependence. Mm. Um, and because with good, good uh, systems and good practices, you can make someone more independent. Uh, and that attitude has to change. And I've seen some wonderful things happen. I was just talking to someone the other day who's, whose brother went into care and he was in a bad way. And in three weeks, there's been a vast improvement by what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, whether they, you know, they can get the appropriate funding to match what they're doing is another matter, but it's great. So it's very difficult and very frustrating. Thank you, Judy. No Sharon Zerley, you're a, a pastoral care practitioner in aged care. Uh, I expect that after the last two years, that's been an incredibly difficult job. Just what is, has it been like? I don't know where to start, Zoe, and thank you for having me on the panel. Um, it's been quite, uh, quite a tasky job um, being part of this journey with the um, residents. Um, and exactly to what Sarah and uh, Sarah have said, uh, it's just been immensely uh, frustrating with uh, the support the staff have got from the government. 
um, and the companies as well, whether they are independent or they are public or you know private facilities. We've all gone through the same journey during the last two years of, of the pandemic. Um, we've all had to play different roles, step up, uh, wear different hats because there was not enough um, support with the manpower. Mm. There was no, uh, not enough uh, financial funds provided to the, to the facilities to have a manpower. And I think uh, Judith will agree with that because if you don't have financial resources, how do you get the ratio uh, to work in the system? You know, it doesn't, it, it was, it was very challenging. Very mm. challenging. And as pastoral care, you've got to be emotional support for the residents, but you can see the frustration of the, if the carers are unhappy, they can't give the hundred percent. So we were mediating between them, trying to hold hands with everybody along this journey. Yeah, um, well, thank you for your work, Sharon. I'm sure that that, that has been extraordinarily cha challenging, um, especially in a COVID environment. Deb Stewart, I want to come to you um, just to sort of get your observations of of what you're, you've heard and how as a, a community health service your, your sort of umbrella role fits over this. Yeah, look, thanks, Zoe. And, um, I would also like to just acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that we're meeting on today and pay my respects to the elders past and present. Um, interesting to hear the perspective, which, you know, very much that lived experience, uh, community health, I, I, I work from quite a different domain. Um, we don't provide any residential services. Um, our focus really is on um, independence and reablement. Um, we're funded through the, the bucket of money um, in, in a limited capacity um, under what's currently known as the Commonwealth Home Support Program, which enables us to employ a range of um, health professionals and other support staff to um, provide care into the home, to provide programs that support people from a socialisation perspective. So I, I think we've probably got quite a different lens on it. I, the other thing I'd like to mention in the context of this conversation is there's been a lot of discussion about the private sector and it certainly is a very competitive market, but there is still a, a component of public um, funding for aged care and community health has access to that as do a number of other providers. There is also a very small amount of um, public residential care and um, my experience at, at Monash Health was we ran, I think, five facilities um, to support that. So there are some layers in there still and what that tends to do though is to make things a little bit more complex. Mm. Also worth mentioning, Zoe, that um, you know, there has been a very big reform agenda around aged care and the, 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 the aged care co commission, um, was the starting point for that. It's really good timing to be having these conversations. There is a, a, a new model, um, being proposed and it's in a consultation phase right now. And that's the support at home program, which will be starting next year. So I think. You know, if we can get our ducks lined up, if you like, right now, and, and having this kind of conversation is an absolute perfect platform to do that so that we can start to influence some of the um, decisions that are going to be made that are going to be quite significant changes to how the funding is allocated. The 
premise is that it's going to simplify it, but we as um, both providers of care, but also recipients of care, um, need to have a voice and start to influence that because some of the examples um, from my team are that the assessment process. So we've talked about people that are in the system already and perhaps living in residential care, but trying to get um, assessed to know where, what the suitability is for what kind of service is, is actually one of the first barriers. And that relies on that, you know, advocacy part on, on behalf, usually of a carer. Um, if you're really lucky, you might have a, a GP who's really across this and can help, but that usually they don't have the time because it is involved and complex. So, you know, I, I had a little bit of hope, hope in me, um, and that, you know, I think I have to have that having worked in the public sector my whole life. Um, but I do think we have an opportunity to start, start to influence some of what's coming. Mm. Yeah, and you're absolutely right that the whole point of having this conversation is so that, mm -hmm. you know, we can all have input into our collective future um, yeah. as a community, which is kind of the way we hope it would be. Um, now, I'm going to sort of start pushing the conversation to what we can do um, in a moment, but I want to go back to Sue just to see what's been coming in on the chat. And I would encourage you to put your comments in and questions in the chat um, so that that can help drive our conversation. What, what sort of things are we seeing there, Sue? There's a lot of things. I've tried to break them into some categories and so I won't be able to talk to every single item, but uh, in no particular order, people are really questioning um, the commercial model, particularly the private sector commercial model, um, saying, you know, it's a false assumption that aged care can operate in a competitive market because in that you would actually have you know, equal bargaining power, equal access to information, and none of that applies to the aged care sector in this way. So they see it as a market failure and it does need government regulation and, uh, or as someone was talking about government ownership or, or some hybrid version. Um, also the system's way too complex. You know, even, you know, highly qualified, experienced, you know, people in other areas can't navigate this. So, and that also brought in the fact that, you know, English, you know, as a second language or other languages, you know, we do live in a multicultural society. So it is just onerous, the paperwork and it's sort of arcane and just the time and effort put in as we've all been discussing. So that was a very, very high, in fact, almost a full A4 page of content that I've gathered just on that. And then of course it went to better pay and staff ratios. And of course the people in the sector working in it, doing their level best to try to deliver care but doing it under extreme stress, not just with COVID, but COVID, of course, added on top of that. So essentially, it's um, really, really interesting to read this through. And then it really comes down to, I think, one of the final comments, which is about, I, I've put humanising the sector and stopping politicians just quoting dollars and numbers. But this is about human lives. And so what we're seeing as a thread through all of this is this sort of detachment from people and we've got to bring that humanness back into play so that we all value it. So that would be my summary, Zoe. Thanks, Sue. And please continue putting your comments and keep yourselves on mute for the moment if you don't mind. But if you would like to speak and tell your story, please put that note into the chat and we can put you up on the screen. Sarah Russell, I want to come back to you. Um, and it so happens that uh, the coalition government in the last 12 months has allocated some more money to aged care. So 
as someone has put in uh, the 2021 budget delivered $17.7 billion to support aged care, supporting training places, higher payments for residential care, 80,000 new home care packages and such. What's your response to that comment that the federal government is sort of stepping in to fix the issue? Thanks, Gail, for your note. My response is there are systemic problems in the aged care sector that need to be fixed there needs to be structural reform. What I mean by that, that there are, there are problems, it's like pouring money uh, into a big black hole because it hasn't been fixed, the hole. So we need to fix the structural problems. We need to fix the workforce. We need to fix, I mean, we need to fix like, there are simple things that we can fix as well, like getting all people who work in aged care registered, for example, through a registration program. There, But there are there are a lot of structural problems in the aged care sector that have been set up for this competitive market model that one of the people in the chat called it. So those structural things need to be fixed before we start putting more money into it. Well, that's my response. I, I'm not sure if any, everyone who works in the sector agrees with that because it definitely does need more money. Interestingly, when, um, sorry, I've forgotten your name, but when um, we were talking about the funding model that is currently being used where people are, uh, providers are sometimes having to exaggerate people's uh, capacity, uh, uh, incapacity to get more money. Um, the, the, the funding model um, in, in 2000, the funding, they found in 2016 that, that uh, one in eight providers were basically lying about that on their, on their, um, on their, it's called ACFIS, the aged care funding instrument. And because of that, the government took money out of the aged care sector because they wanted to sort of fix the, the, what they called rorting basically, but, but it's the structural stuff in the sector that needs to be fixed. If we could just start by fixing the workforce, that is going to cost some money too, but, but we need to, not just throw money at aged care, but be very targeted in how we give money and fix the system as well. That might sound a bit vague, but I'm just trying to sort of say it does need the actual structure to be fixed as well. Yeah. Judy Tucker, I can see you've got your camera off. Thank you for still being there. Um, I wanted to come back to you on the workforce issues. I mean, you know, this seems to be really fundamental to the problem and, you know, There've been multiple inquiries into aged care and the, you know, and then we had a Royal Commission and they've all pointed to the workforce issues. So what is your thinking about what, what we could do to, to begin to resolve that? The trouble is Zoe, I've always thought this and it remains the same. It ain't rocket science. <laughs> when, when you start off um, with an aged care facility, first of all, you've got to make sure you get the right staff. You have to make sure you have registered nurse cover 24-7 because unless you have that, people and, and the staff who are there who don't have that skill level do not know when to worry and when to call for help, etc. And I discovered that in my mother's situation um, and many other, other places as well. So in my situation, I only recommend people to go to a facility that has that situation where you have that level of skill. Mm. You also have to have 
um, I guess you've got to put in the time where you have good relationships with staff. You also have to make sure that the residents um, who are in that facility, that you have, there is an admission process, pre-admission process, where you actually spend time with that person and their family to really form a relationship and discover their situation. So when you've done that, when you've got the staff and you've got the residents and the family who have a comfortable communication with you, then a lot of things go much better. Um, you also, I saw something today in my research where someone was talking about you need you need to have someone in the facility. I've often thought about it. I did it, but at great cost to myself as regards ours. You need to have a almost a helicopter person who goes around and who can find out if there are issues and then get them fixed and attended to so that it doesn't get go out into the ether and people say, oh, yes, I'll do that or what have you. Mm. So they're sort of, those sort of things are the things that I would look at. And uh, it's, it's very, unfortunately, the way it's structured, people don't seem to think, I mean, time is the hardest thing to spend, but in the end, you get the results um, back in heaps. And, so, and that's, so let me put a couple of things yes. to you, Judy, you know, before I move on, just rapid fire. If you were to say, okay, every um, aged care home has to have a registered nurse rostered on, yep. that there needs to be more extensive training of um, carers, that there needs to be um, and, and in, someone who's responsible for infectious issues, yep. COVID and, and others. Um, and then is there a salary issue that would increase the pool of workers because it would be more attractive and, and well, also yeah. increase the capacity of the workers? Well, all of that, I think, I know, I know people choose not to have that level of skill to save money, but in the end, they're sort of spending more money because you have more hospital admissions um, and, and you have a lot of things that go wrong. And you also have more pressure on the staff and that doesn't help either. Stress levels are increased. Mm. I guess um, it's rather than my worry is, I used to say, and I still think of it, when you go into aged care, you're not going into a holiday camp, right? The people who go into aged care are there, are there to get care and what I'm saying is the focus should not be on activities that look good, sound good, but are not appropriate for the people who are there. So I guess they would appreciate more time given to their care needs rather than having that budget go on fluffy activities. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's those sort of things because people, as we all get older, I mean, You've got most of the time you have family who can, you know, interact with you and take you out if necessary, et cetera. It's more, it's more the knowing for the families, knowing that their loved one is actually having their care needs addressed is the vital thing. And then you can look at activities um, as time progresses, depending on the resident. I mean, the joke is when they talk about person-centered care, it's a joke because it doesn't necessarily happen. And uh, 
I've I've looked. I have clients in home care and and aged care in the past, but not now. Um, but I think it's as in facilities. But you know that's the way it should go. Mm. Um, and but I think a lot of people get attracted to. I suggest to people to really ignore notice boards and all programs of activities because that's not the priority. It, the priority is to look after the health of the people. And you have to have in aged care, it has to be the most experienced nurse because you're looking at a person whose organs, if you like, are getting tired. And so you really, really need to be aware of signs and symptoms and, and then at the right time, get the attention that's required to nip things in the bud instead yep. of, you know. Thanks, but, Judy. Now, okay. um, I can see that we've got lots of messages on the chat and I'll go back to Sue in a moment. But Mar Mara Pigato, you put a message on saying that you would like to tell your story and I would love to hear it. Are you still there? I am still here and thank you for this forum. I am so angry. I don't know how to articulate my anger. My story, and I'll try and make it as brief as possible because everyone has a story, but my story began when my mother was diagnosed with dementia. From there, it was badly managed. We were told, she's got dementia, see you later. That's it. There was no support systems. We weren't given any advice. I had to do all the research. Then we got onto home care and that was another disaster. Com com complexity, unbelievable. Not to complete all the forms, no support, nothing. Then we went into residential care, another financial disaster. And then she died. The last two weeks of her life was the best care that she received. I just, I can't believe this system. But the mum was in aged care, you know, residential aged care facility for close to four years. And I advocated every day for her and for those people in this memory support unit. Mm. They had, they could have done so much and they did very, very little. The carers that were there, I think only had a couple of hours while they were doing their course to become PCAs in dementia care. That's all they knew. They didn't know about behavior. They didn't know how to manage these people. They couldn't even make a bed. The amount of emails, conversations that I had with the GMs, there was about five or six that I spoke to. Nothing. Mm. We paid a fortune. For mm. what? I was bringing in food. I was bringing in fruit. I was doing the laundry. I was there six days a week. It's disgraceful. Lara, I'm just so angry, Zoe. I'm yeah, so angry. And you know what I'm now? I'm an aged care case manager because of my mum. Yeah. I want to get into residential aged care and I want to make a difference because no one listens to us. No one. Yes, yes, Mara. Yes, Mara. Yes, Mara. I even spoke to the CEO and I got nothing. I, I sent him a photo on LinkedIn of one night's dinner that consisted of an epping sausage and cold um, mashed potatoes. He came down from Sydney. He told me what, will I mention the facility name or not? 
perhaps not, but we can talk about it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. You know, he came down, I spent 20 minutes with him. He told me what this, the name of this facility meant and all the rest of it. I said, yeah, but is she going to get a better dinner than one in sausage and some cold mash? Really? What do we have to do? What do we have to do? So Mara, uh, thank you for being so honest in, in telling the story of your mum. And obviously you, it's now motivated you to, to work in the sector. Do you have, you know, a couple of things that would have made a big difference to your situation? 100%. So from the time that my mum was diagnosed with dementia, so I should have been able to hook on with somebody, case manager, if you like, whatever. And that person or that area should have helped me throughout my journey. You know, I shouldn't, it was bad enough knowing that my mum had dementia, but there was very little support out there. Lots of grumpy people. You know, I did come across some beautiful people along the way, but I did all the work. So those support mechanisms weren't there. You know, my mum's dementia was diagnosed with dementia. A switch should have been flicked then. Find the 1-800 number up, you'll get a case manager or somebody, and they will walk you through your throughout your journey into residential aged care. You know, I, I just, there's it's, it's so much disconnection between all these areas. There's nothing there that connects things. They're like they're in silos. Yeah, I can, I can see Sarah Hardy, you're nodding at Mara's story. Sarah, how, how does that resonate with your experience with mum and dad? Yeah, I think the, I agree that word siloing. Yeah, that, that really resonates. Yep. And it's just darn complicated. And like I said before, I think there should be an advocate, um, or a case manager for each person. Um, it's expensive. But maybe it stream, streamlines the process. Maybe it actually saves money somewhere. Mm. Although maybe it stops us all going off to see a psychiatrist or other. <laughs> I, I think oh. in things that are aged care facilities, there should be a representative for the families and they should have, I don't know whether the word power is the right word to use, but they should be able to ad advocate for these families. We had no one at our facility. It was me. I was the one that advocated for everyone in the dementia unit, you know, but these facilities should be forced to have an advocate there and should be forced to listen to that advocate. And if families are coming to that advocate in that, in that facility, things should be done. I couldn't even get a garden, you know, a sensory garden that had the space that was all set up. I couldn't even get that done. And it's been proven that sensory garden health with people with dementia. Mm. Nothing. I want to come back to Sarah Russell um, because one of the things that's come up in the chat is the idea of um, a rating system and, and full disclosure of the performance of particular homes. Is that something that could realistically be implemented? It's, it's actually in the Royal Commission's um, recommendations, mm. um, and yes, it could be. Just going back to Mara's story, I, uh, six years ago, started a Facebook group with um, 60 people, you know, and we were families who, my mother had died, but others were, had family members who were still alive, 
having similar, unfortunately, similar experiences. That group now has 5,200 members. And I hear that story over and over again. This is not a one-off experience, Mara. This is something that's happening all around the country. It's happening. It's, but the thing that really concerns me, oh, lots of things concern me, so I won't give you a whole list of things, but I will say families are traumatised by the way their loved one is treated in some of these aged care homes. And it stays with them for years. When they should be grieving for the loss of their parent, they are still angry about how they were treated. And it stays with them. And it breaks my heart. Because I have to confess, my mother and father were in a good age care home. And I don't feel traumatised by that experience. And I'm so sad for you, Mara, because it doesn't have to be that way. And your suggestion about an advocate is something that one of my colleagues is looking into. I'm just going to put it out there very briefly. She's looking at actually starting a union almost type model where you kind of get an advocate and you pay a minute. You shouldn't have to do all that. You should, I mean, in many aged care homes that are good, the staff are the advocate for the resident. So, sorry, back to the rating system. Yes, it's been suggested. I don't want something simple. I don't want, you know, a star rating like, um, what do you call that thing where you track tra travel advisor or something mm -hmm. it needs to be more complex one of the things i'm just going to be very brief with this because i know there's lots of people wanting to talk but I, you know when i put my mama into other into an aged care home i wanted to know before i put her in have there been any complaints about this aged care home what are the complaints have there been medication errors have there been falls i can't access any of that information providers believe it or not say that information is commercial incompetence. Mm. How did that happen in an aged care sector? So rating systems with a star, for me, don't work. We need information about the homes. We need to know about the complaints. We need to know their rosters. Do they have a registered nurse on 24 hours a day or not? How, mm. What are the, you know, do you have, three or four registered nurses employed here or are they mostly PCAs with five weeks training? I mean, we want to know that information. You can't get it from some homes. They don't tell you. So those are the things that I would like to see. So you get more information before you make the decision to put your <coughs> move into it. That's yes. I mean, it, it's, it sort of almost sounds like you need to do 12 months research to know what questions to ask before <laughs> you're suddenly in the situation where you have to move your parent. And Mara, there's lots of love for you on the chat. So many people saying thank you for telling your story and your your passion, your frustration and your your love for your mum is palpable. So thank you very much for, for stepping forward to tell us. Now, Sue, I want to come back to you. Um, good luck summarising that chat, Sue, because oh. there's a lot of comments in there, but what are the main themes? Well, I think is the lack of coordination and just the sheer frustration at having to all the work you have to do. And I think here that, you know, people are talking about food facilities. They're talking about more integration with local community, more transparency, um, obviously better trained staff, better paid staff. Also looking at the future, someone suggested basically having an overarching statement and vision for aged care in Australia. So like a charter or something like that, that we work towards and, you know, back to the Human Rights Commission and those sorts of things. But, you know, being able to prioritise that. But then also too, I've just come up here, it's competing motivations. That's a really big issue that's coming up. 
you know, where there's accommodation bonds and people, you know, um, you know, private equity firms getting into aged care, looking at them as big money pits, those types of things as well. So, and also again, back to the government loving big sounding numbers, but actually not doing anything significant with them. I'd like to raise one thing myself uh, in honour of Elsie. Um, I found her one day at home self-medicating morphine for her cancer. And I have to work really hard to find somewhere to take her. So it's not just in the aged care homes, it's before people get to the aged care homes uh, and things like that to try and keep these people, you know, living a decent life. So, you know, there's lots of interesting things coming through here, but rage, frustration, anger, um, you know, we've got to do something. Zoe, that's the best I can do at the moment. Yeah, thank you, Sue. And, you know, look... Um, I'm, I'm a person who had, had a grandmother who was in aged care with dementia. My parents uh, are both, um, living at home and, and not in aged care, but I, particularly in my mum's case, she lives on her own. I think she has a great terror of ending up in aged care. And, and that certainly hasn't been helped by the evidence of what we've seen in aged care in the last couple of years. So that you end up with people who, who are really fearful of the prospect of having to go into aged care because they don't feel that they'll be safe. Um, and that, you know, that's certainly, you would think, not the position that we want to be in. Sharon Burley, I, I hope you're still there. I wanted to come back to you having heard Mara's story. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that you hear a lot of that kind of theme. Yes, I do. Mara, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. I hope there was some comfort and some support given to you at the end of your mum's journey. Quite emotionally been hearing you say that, actually. Yes, I don't know what to say, Zoe. I mean, there's, there's you know, the, like I said, the ratio is the biggest problem. We've, been, we've got two people working in 130-bed facility mm. uh, care that of uh, where I work, and it's it's really huge um it's really huge i i have no words how, <laughs> I, 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 how do you spread yourself how do you spread yourself across five days a week uh, it's it's not i don't look at my watch at all uh it's just based on um you know if there are referrals from the carers or the other staff the nurses then we go to attend to those residents immediately um we're two on site uh and that is only because of the COVID uh, dynamics that we are towards side at the moment. Normally it's just one uh, per day. Um, and we just base it on the number of people we visit is just how much time that person needs. I don't look at my watch. And uh, though my timings are eight to four, we go in early and we leave late, you know, family doesn't come first at all over here, uh, sadly, but it is, yeah. Uh, just on Mara's topic, uh, it's very really sad that the facility you had your mum in was was uh, not uh, catering to her condition. I where I work, it's it's definitely on a different side. We have the Montessori uh, basis for people with dementia, and uh, I wish there were more facilities that catered to that need because your sensory training it's spot on with all of that. Um, and, and I think I'm probably just surviving because there is more conditional care given to all 
residents, irrespective of the state or uh, physical medical condition they are in. And um, what Judith said was also right. I mean, uh, stimulation is important for every person that comes, and I say resident, but every person that comes into HK, is, it is important, irrespective of what their condition is. Uh, our facility is more um, Catholic oriented, but we don't have all Catholic residents. So, um, and that in, in, in that phase of person's life, religion does come, become a priority and families insist on that, but that's not important for that person. We need to ask the parent or that person or the loved one what they want. Hmm. People have put the person into aged care because it's a Catholic, but at 80, 90 years old, that's not what they want. They just want somebody to be able to talk to. What about the other staff? Sharon, I mean, we've talked about, you know, the issues of understaffing and perhaps inadequate training and, and such, but you do, you've got a lot of really underpaid or staff oh, yes. in, in aged care. So it, it, there must be an enormous amount of pressure. And I know that the hours are very fragmented too. What is so often people are having to jump around different jobs. So what, this is just irrespective of where I work. Um, I've come from disability uh, to aged care and I've noticed since NDIS has been rolled out, it's a huge vast void with terms of payment for aged care workers. And so many of the aged care workers are now jumping into disability because there is more incentive for them. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, and what uh, the Sarah, Dr. Sarah has said as makes so much sense that the resources are not spread uh, and therefore there is such a vast void in, in ratio in aged care because the carers, all the PCAs and others are jumping into it because NDIS pays better mm. and that's disability. For, so aged care is not at all, uh, uh, you know, as much we say people with a passion and, and I'm glad uh, Mara has taken up, uh, you know, a job in aged care, I was looking at aged care. Because that's the only incentive that people have. My passion is because we've had my mother-in-law into HK and therefore I've, you know, it took us a whole journey of navigation and hence I've gone into HK. So yeah, that is, that shouldn't be the only incentive. And sadly, financial and money is a calling for carers. Not everybody with a passion works in this industry. So we've had a, a a question on the chat saying, could each of the speakers give one suggestion for change with that, which they think would make a di big difference? What's the main thing that you think would change something? And, you know, I, I do think that these forums need to be as solutions oriented as we can make them, much as we know that the situation is dire. So Sharon, let's start with you since we're with you. If, if, if there was one thing, what, what would it be? Or manpower. Mm more manpower and manpower will only come with, um, I suppose, uh, initiation from the government ratios is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Judy, are you still there? Can you give I am. an answer to that? I'm yes. guessing you might say something similar. <laughs> well, I, I guess, you know, what gets me about ratios, um, they often include, um, staff who are actually not carers. Um, but maybe cleaning staff and all that sort of thing. So they're often not accurate. And, and I guess it is, it is so difficult. What, what actually gave me a huge 
I was so astonished when I discovered a few years ago, um, I had a client who was um, over 65 and she said to me at home and she had a very great debilitating illness and she said, uh, my carer said, you know, his other client gets so much more um, care. What's happening? And of course, you know, once you hit 65, um, if you try to apply for NDIS, you don't get it. And so you're looking at sort of like theoretically aged care, top funding for your care is 52,000 versus 300,000 for top in NDIS for the same actual degree need for care. Now, that's not right. And I don't understand how that happens to be because no matter age, care should not be related to your age, your gender, or anything like that. Care is required if the funding needs to match the care required, not your age. And I find that's a huge discrepancy. And somewhere along the line, um, and I know with the NDIS, there are rorts that happen um, with providers and families where they have arrangements um, and money is shared and all that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's a big worry. And I just, as I say, if someone, my client at the time, who's since died, but she needed a high degree of care. But there you go, 52000 when you're taking, you know, the, uh, the providers be out and all that, you're not left with much. Yep. And that's sad. That's sad. So that needs looking at. Sarah Hardy, if there's one thing that would have made a difference for you, what would it have been? Yeah, I think an advocate, some sort of advocate at the start of the process. Um, who had simple streamlined procedures on how to make you get through the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Deb, I'll come back to you. Um, I know you've been diligently there uh, observing the conversation. What, what jumps out? Yeah, look, uh, and I guess I do bring a, a different perspective. Um, and, and this isn't just a reflection on the aged care system. I think it's on our healthcare system, our disability system is that it's so fragmented. And, you know, to me, the one thing I'd like to see is that all our systems that support community, can support vulnerable people are actually working together under the same agenda and the same objective. And that is not happening and that does mean that, you know, we get this sort of system breakdown at so many levels. And, and you know, just thinking about, um, you know, hospitalisation, we know that outcomes are poor for an older person to go into hospital, but how frequently do people get transferred from residential aged care into hospital because the care that can be provided in the home just isn't there. And that's not a reflection on the staff. They just don't have the skills to manage, whereas when they have the skills, they can actually care for someone in their home, which is usually the very best outcome. So, you know, there's a couple of things there, I think, but, you know, it's a, it's a system-wide change that's needed. Yeah. yeah. We, we do have time for a couple more comments. If anyone would like to speak, um, please put your desire to do that in the chat. Sue, I wanted to come back to you, though, and again, we, we have just a huge amount of comments in there. What are you seeing? Well, I'm already up to seven A4 pages of comments. I'm just capturing it from people. So I'm trying to do my best to to navigate my way through it. Um, I just think that 
people are really frustrated at the profiteering, the um, price gouging, the uh, lack of transparency, um, and just the way the system is rorted. And the people wanting it to be made much more transparent and fair, um, accessible for people, and something that actually, as, as Sarah pointed out, something to that's easier to navigate your way through. Um, it's not just the person's, you know, end of quality, end of life. It's all the people caring for them, as you say, being traumatized by having to deal with such a fragmented, dysfunctional system. So I think, you know, um, someone did say, I think on a brighter note, because this can be quite sort of, you know, distressing for people, but, you know, the um, uh, old people's home four-year-olds, you know, these sorts of more integrated, community integrated programs where we actually reconnect all of us back into our community. So, you know, older elderly people aren't out there somewhere over there. Mm. They're actually in our community and we create environments that um, are staggered and staged in such a way that people can still have access to that. We seem to have quarantined old people to the side and we don't want that. It's a fantastic point, Sue. And to to that point, um, today I popped into the um, Hampton Community Centre where they have a weekly event called Chatty Cafe, um, which is a deliberate effort to create an outlet for people to alleviate loneliness. So there are a lot of people there who live alone and a lot of older people who come along once a week just to have a a cup of tea to make friends and to have lunch. And it might sound like a simple thing, um, but it's, it's much needed in, in connecting our communities. And it was actually an incredibly unlift, uplifting hour or so that I spent there speaking to, to the Hampton residents. So I think, you know, not, it doesn't always have to be a very complicated thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's simple things, simple difference. And it's actually a, a, the perfect segue into my final question, which was for Sarah Russell. Um, Sarah, you and I had a chat the other day and one thing that really stuck in my mind, which was this, this issue of ageism, whether kind of what we're talking about goes to a devaluation of older people in our society and, and then how we reframe that. I think it underpins a lot of what goes on in aged care ageism. But could I just make one point about what I think could change to make things better? Because I didn't get my go and I like to participate in this. I agree with what everyone said, but meals are so important in an aged care home. What people eat is it's a thing, sometimes it's a thing they look forward to every day is their meal. Now, it's also, I'm going to make a second point, just sorry, I, I do this sometimes, I'm sorry, but the government tried to address this by giving, at the, after the Royal Commission, a provider got $10 extra per resident to improve the food. That was the primary reason for this money. But it wasn't tied to anything. They just got it. So a lot of providers did improve their food and spend more money. Other providers got at sports cars and paid this, their executives more money. I mean, they don't do it properly. If you want to improve the food, you tie that money to food. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science, as someone said earlier. Some of this stuff. So back to the thing. I, I do think, and I don't, I don't just talk very long on that answer, because I do think ageism, how we treat older people, how we think about older people, and the way our Prime Minister currently talks about their deaths without any compassion for their deaths, 
I think that is showing how we devalue people once they're no longer economically productive. Mm-hmm. And in other societies, they are out in our Indigenous First Nations people, they are the elders. They are the people to respect and look up to for their wisdom. And it breaks my heart the way we treat older people. So I do think it's a problem. I think it's a policy problem because I don't think, I mean, I think there are families all around the country who adore their grandparents and adore their, and they do. And that's a familial line. But when you actually think of old people as a concept, you might love your grandparents, but do you care about all Do you want to pay a levy to improve aged care? That's a question because you might want your grandparents to be treated well, but do you want to pay a levy to make sure everyone's grandparents are treated well? I stop there. Zoe, Zoe, can I just throw in something for consideration? Because someone's mentioned about couples, ageing couples being together and then facilitating the different levels of care they might need. And I'm sure Sarah's probably got a thing or two to say about that, but I just wanted to land that in there as a concept for discussion if when appropriate. Hmm. Sarah, did you have something to add? I didn't see you nodding there. Ah, it's just it's just harder with times two. Um I've got my father who's uh physically very fit, mentally uh not a mother super on the ball. Body's a mess. So um it is, it's hard. Um and then one supports the other and then trying to get them both into aged care because it's hard to get one room and you can get two beds in a room. But yeah, it, it's it's complicated. It's just complicated. Yeah. I so appreciate everyone's contribution tonight. We've had so many comments on the the chat um, and, you know, lots of common themes, as Sue said, uh, undervaluing of the female workforce in aged care is one thing that's come up. And my um, one of my central interests as a, a candidate is revalue, revaluing of the care economy um, and the contribution that the female workforce make. So that's something that we'll be working on in the background. But one of the comments that I really liked from Julian is that the senior members of our community are the shoulders that we all stand upon and our senior members of our community deserve dignity and respect. This conversation and and those that we have in the street with people who are constantly raising the issue of aged care with me will really help inform my advocacy. I thank you so much for taking the time on a Wednesday night to spend almost an hour and a half with us discussing this. And we'll be collating all of those comments that you've taken the time to put into the chat um, to help to to pull together the sorts of positions that I might advocate for in Canberra. Thank you so much to our panel, Judy Tucker, Sharon Burley, Dr. Sarah Russell, Sarah Hardy, and Deb Stewart. Your time is really very much appreciated. And um, please, everyone, if you would like to add more to this conversation, jump onto the website. I think Sue um, put the email into the chat about a thousand messages ago, but info at zoedaniel.com.au. If you have a particular story to tell about a member of your family who's in care uh, that you want to tell me about, that you want me to know about, if you work in care, if you manage care and you'd like me to come and visit and have a look, I'm very keen to do that to try to get a perspective. Sue, I'll hand back to you to close.
You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria. 